words of inspiration and words of preparation for the high holidays of the Yomim Neiroim. Before we begin and turn the program over to Rabbi Jacobson, I wanted to give a short word of thanks to Ira and Hannah Pressman for helping to make this evening possible, to help facilitate Rabbi Jacobson and all that's surrounding the event tonight. Thank you very much. The merit of many, not only in this room, but those globally, are uh, extend their thanks. And all of the inspiration and mitzvahs that are inspired from this presentation come back to your merit as well. The topic for tonight, perspectives on what it means to err, what it means to sin, a panel discussion, is the proper mind, to get the proper mindset in preparation for Rosh Hashanah, we've invited back to Chabad of the Mainline, Rabbi Yossi Jacobson, a very gifted speaker, but more importantly, a very gifted educator, was able to bring over the messages of Torah and messages of Chassidus that we're able to integrate intellectually, emotionally, and most importantly, in a way they can integrate into our behavior. I want to wish everyone, everyone here should be inscribed and sealed for a year of goodness, a year of health, a year of prosperity, a year of success. And all of our wishes and all of our needs should be satisfied by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by the Holy One, blessed be He, to only enjoy a year of tremendous, tremendous success. Rabbi Jacobson, turn the program over to you. Thank you very much. Sherman. Welcome, dear friends, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, those who are here, Hakel, those who are assembled here physically, we're thrilled to have you and we're thrilled to everybody who is with us virtually. Communities and homes and shuls and centers and Chabad centers around the world. Welcome to all. Bruchim Habayim and Shana Tova. I too want to begin with expressing gratitude to Ira and Hannah Pressman for them graciously creating and allowing this global event to take place here in the main line and around the world through the web, as well as express my gratitude to uh, Ida and David Schattenstein from Columbus as well as Fivish and Tamar Pevsner from the five towns in New York, dedicated in the loving memory of Fivish's father, Reb Hillel, Reb David Pevsner. Thank you very much and welcome to all. They tell the story about a man who was lost, lost in the wilderness one day, two days, three days. He could not find his way out. Desperate, dejected, scared, searching for every possible opportunity, hint to get out of this barren wilderness, but to no avail. And then suddenly, in the middle of his search, he sees a man with a lantern. 
with excitement, with excitement, with ecstasy, he runs over to this person. And he says, sir, sir, I've been lost in this forest for three days. Please, can you share with me the way out? The man smiles and says, you have been lost for three days. I have been lost for three months. All I can tell you are the ways which will not take you out of this forest. I have experimented. I have attempted many a route. And rest be assured, I am the expert on which ways will lead you nowhere. There are experts for everything. And there are experts for this too. I cannot tell you which way will take you out of the forest. If so, the man tells him, let us hold hands and search for a new way together. And that is why we are here this evening. There is confusion. There is turmoil. There is sadness. There is desperation. There are questions. There are doubts. There is pain. We attempted many pathways. Some of us are great experts on which paths take us nowhere. Tonight, let us hold hands and search for a new way as we begin a new year, but together. It's been said... And I think I shared this here in the past by Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Rabbi Nachman said, what is the difference between speaking and singing? When you speak, he says, and somebody else starts talking in the middle of your speech, what do we call it? Interruption. But if I'm singing... And somebody begins singing in the middle of my song, what do we call it? Harmony. The objective of life, he then said, was to stop speaking and to start singing. But here's the catch, friends. As we have said in the past, there are people that even when they sing, they're speaking. And there are others that even as they speak, they're singing. Those who speak their whole life, everybody's always interrupting them. Those who sing, everybody's harmonizing with them. So to be able to hold hands and search for a new way together, we have to learn how to sing, not only speak. And thus, we begin tonight's special event, pre-Rosh Hashanah, pre-Yom Kippur of 5770, with two songs on the words of Vinu Malkeinu, the high holiday melody, Avinu Malkeinu, our father, our king, please join us together with world-renowned cantor Beryl Zucker, who is here with us, with his brother, the pianist Chani Zucker, for Avinu Malkeinu. Avinu Oh, nay, no, but 
composed by Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi.
So they tell the story about the pilot, a Syrian pilot on a Syrian plane. And as he's flying, he sends out an emergency message. One of my engines is failing. Can anybody in the area help me? I need to make an emergency landing. Any country besides, of course, Israel. Silence. No response. Ten minutes later, Oi, the Syrian pilot shouts, A second engine is failing us. Please, can we make an emergency landing nearby any country besides Israel? Silence. No response. And a few minutes later, the poor guy is truly alarmed. The third engine has failed them. If we don't make a landing immediately, our end is near anybody besides Israel. Silence. And finally, when the next engine is failing, the man says, anybody, even Israel, help us. The Israeli pilot gets on from Tel Aviv, Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. Shalom Aleichem. Pomed Aber David me Yisrael. Oh, can you help us? Four engines are failing. Please tell us what to do. Bevadai, certainly we will help you. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you. Sure, what should we do? And the Israeli says, say after me word for word. Yisgadal ve'yisgadash shmei rabah. Tonight we explore the secret of renewal. Following mistakes, errors, we human beings make in life. Sometimes one wakes up a little too late. Hence the significance of the high holidays. And tonight we want to go on a little journey. And for this journey, we're going to study a very enigmatic piece of the Midrash. Reflect on it, and then see how a short enigmatic passage contains within itself extraordinary layers of insight and depth. If you'll open up your curriculum, those who are here, page number one, you have two pages, or you have the curriculum under the video on the web. Source number one, and by the way, all the songs we will be singing tonight, you also have the full text here on the curriculum, page two, so you could follow along. Open your curriculum, page number one, the last paragraph on the bottom of page one, source number one. Midrash Yalkut Shimoni on Psalms, Tehillim, Remez, Tovshin, Beis. Sha'alu lechachma. They inquired of wisdom. What is the punishment of the sinner? Amra lahem, wisdom responded, Chatoyim tir Evil pursues iniquity. Sins are pursued by raw, by negativity. It's a verse of Proverbs. Proverbs written by the wisest of men, the paradigm of wisdom. So the Midrash says they asked wisdom, what is the fate of the sinner? And wisdom responded, evil negativity pursues sin. 
They asked prophecy. How shall the sinner be punished? Prophecy responded. And here is a verse from prophecy, from the prophet Ezekiel. The soul which sins, who sins, shall perish, shall die. This is a verse from Ezekiel, who was a prophet. Proverbs is the paradigm of wisdom. Yechezkel Ezekiel is the paradigm for prophecy. They ask prophecy, what's the fate of the sinner? Prophecy says, the soul who sins shall die, shall perish. Shalulatayra. You know how Jews are, you don't like answer number one, you go to number two. You don't like answer number two, you go to number three, right? They went to Torah. <laughs> it happens in the main line too, I thought only in Brooklyn. They came to the Torah and they asked Torah, What shall be the fate of the sinner? The Torah quoted Leviticus. Leviticus is not the prophets, it's the Torah. Let the sinner bring, let him bring an offering, a sacrifice, a guilt offering, and his sin or her sin will be atoned. It says, I guess women never sin. This was written by men. They came to God. They asked God, What's the fate of the sinner? Remember, wisdom said, negativity pursues sin. Prophecy said, death. Torah said, an offering, a sacrifice. What did God say? Omar Lohem, God responded, let this person do tshuva. Let this person return, repent, and he shall be atoned. This is the meaning of the verse in Tehillim and Psalms. Good and just as God, thus he shows the sinners the path. He shows the sinners a path, a way out, by doing tshuva, by doing repentance. And this is the end of this episode of the Midrash. Difficult to comprehend. It seems strange. What do we have here? An argument between wisdom, prophecy, Torah, and God? And who is the source of the wisdom in Proverbs? And who is the source of the prophecies in Ezekiel? And who is the source of the perspectives of Torah? Not God. Wisdom has one response, prophecy another, Torah a third, and yet God has a fourth. What do we have here? Four different religions? Four different Jews? Four different synagogues? What we see is an argument, a debate, natural and inherent to the Jewish structure, to Jewish history. As they say, Jews have always been debating and fighting. It's just a sophisticated people gives their fighting sophisticated names. We fight with the world. We call it sociology. We fight with God. We call it theology. We fight with ourselves. We call it psychology. They say about an old shul where they never could get it straight, whether you sit by Kaddish or you stand by Kaddish. And you know, once fighting takes roots in synagogues, it never leaves. So every Saturday, there was another commotion. 
half of the congregation was getting up, and half of the congregation was sitting down like stubborn mules. These would not budge, and these would not budge. And one Saturday, it just became unbearable because they started to hurt each other. They were throwing the cholent and the kugel and the kishka and the knirshas. It was just total havoc in the synagogue. So the board decided we have to put an end to all these troubles. What do they do? They said, you know, there's a guy, David Siegel. He's 106 years old. He's in the old age home. And he was one of the founding members of the synagogue. We'll approach him and ask him how they used to do it in the good old days. So the first group, the sitters by Kaddish, went to Mr. Siegel, 106. Were you from the founding members? Yeah. Isn't it true that in this synagogue they always used to sit by Kaddish? The man thinks, he says, I can't say that that's how they did it. Disappointed, the other group rejoiced. They come back the next day, Mr. Siegel, isn't it true that in this synagogue they always stood by Kaddish? He thinks, I can't say that that's how they did it. He didn't give an answer. So the next day, both groups came together. And this one says, Mr. Siegel, isn't it true they used to sit? And this one, isn't it true they used to stand? And right there and then, in the old age, they started to kill each other. Sit, stand, no, sit, no. And he looks, says, that's how they used to do it. <laughs> so you see, friends, we are used to this type of behavior. I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I heard this myself from him very humorously. He once said, why is it that when two Jews meet, one Jew looks at another Jew and says, Shalom Aleichem, peace unto you. And the response is, Aleichem Shalom, unto you peace. Why isn't the response reciprocal? I say to you, Shalom Aleichem. You should say, Shalom Aleichem. Imagine if I tell you, good morning. And you say, morning good. A little strange, right? Good morning, good morning. Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem. The Rebbe said, no, you have to understand how Jews work. The moment two Jews meet, I tell you, Shalom Aleichem, the first response is, you got it all wrong. <laughs> it's the other way around. Aleichem Shalom, not Shalom Aleichem. Now we can begin a conversation. And you hope once they got the need to fight out of the system, now the rest of the conversation will hopefully be peaceful. Granted, and whichever way you're going to explain this dynamic among Jews, it still doesn't answer the Midrash. Because here we're dealing with wisdom, prophecy, Torah, and God, and yet everybody has a different answer. As though everybody comes from a different place. It reminds us of the episode described by Isaac Basheva Zinger. Isaac Basheva Zinger writes about the Jew from Chelem. The Jew from the Polish city from Chelem who goes to Vilna, the great Jewish city of Lithuania, comes back from Vilna and they say, Nu, who did you meet in Vilna? And he says, Ah, something special. I walked into the synagogue of Vilna and I met a Jew who was an atheist. I met a Jew who was an agnostic. I met a Jew who was a staunch believer. I met a religious Jew. I met an anti-religious Jew. I met a liberal Jew. I met a conservative Jew. I met a fundamentalist, fanatical Jew. I met an open-minded Jew. I met a Zionist, an anti-Zionist, a capitalist, a socialist, a Bundist, a Yiddishist. 
So they look at him and they say, what's the big deal? Here in Chalim we also have all these types of Jews. He says, you don't understand, it was all the same Jew. (laughs) (laughs) This, friends, is the key to understand the Medrash. These four responses are not responses given by different authors who are not on speaking terms with each other. After all, God has a relationship with Torah. They're on speaking terms. It's His Torah. After all, wisdom and prophecy also have a relationship with Torah and with God. Rather, each of them capture a critical and necessary perspective in the road to recovery, in the road to healing, in the pathways to sobriety, and in our search to leave a dense forest and wilderness. We begin with wisdom. We grow to prophecy. We continue to grow to the world of Torah until we can encounter and appreciate the divine God's perspective. Each of us makes mistakes in life. Is there anybody present here who never makes mistakes? I'm sure some men think they never make mistakes, no? You know, the guy who once told his wife, I never make mistakes. The only time I made a mistake was back in 74. She said, what happened? He said, I thought I made a mistake. If, if there is somebody present here who never made a mistake <laughs> or never makes a mistake, you can leave. But if they say the only people I know that are perfect are the people I don't know well. But when we know ourselves well or we know others well, we know that mistakes are inherent to the very chemistry of human nature and to the very chemistry of human life. And thus... Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the high holidays, are the time we explore these errors, these mistakes, because we can look at them from four different perspectives. They're all correct. They're all right. The question is only the phase, the time, and the context. The first phase is the phase of wisdom. But preceding all of them is the honesty. The keen honesty, acknowledging a mistake. A man once came to a Hasidic master. The Rebbe Reb Shmuel, the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, he has committed a heinous sin but he was ashamed to tell the Rebbe what he did. So what do you do when you want to confess to the Rabbi? What do you do? You don't say, Rabbi, I did this and this. You say, Rabbi, I have a good friend. Right? You wouldn't know, but I've had the experience. Rabbi, I have a good friend, and he sent me here. So he comes to the Rebbe, Rebbe Shmuel, he says, Rebbe, I have a very, very close friend. He did so and so. He's embarrassed to come. So he sent me to ask the Rebbe, how to fix the sin. 
So the Lubavitcher Rebbe looks at him and says, I have a question. Why did you, why did your friend have to send you so that you could tell me that he did it? Why couldn't your friend come here and tell me that you did it? So he said, Rebbe, I did it. He said, now let's find the way out. And he gave him the way out. But I want to ask you a question. Why did he have to do this? Did he just have to tell him, hey, 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 you're not going to get away. I know your secret. Why would the Rebbe care if this person thinks that he fooled him? As they say in Yiddish, Grace Gedilla, Akins, Anar, the same Rebbe once said, we don't fool anybody in this world. We don't fool the world. We don't fool God. We only fool ourselves. So is it so brilliant when a fool deceives another fool? Why did the Rebbe have to show him that he knew the truth? The answer, friends, is simple but profound. There is no way he could give him a way out if he was not ready to stand up to it and take accountability. You don't have to be perfect in life, but you have to be accountable in life. If you're not ready to say, I did it, you're not ready for healing. It's not about a project that I will give you. Do one, two, three, and you'll recover. It's about standing up and looking at your life in the mirror. This is a major theme of the high holidays, expressed in those words. Which is recited as a poem the night of Yom Kippur when a person, a Jew, looks deeply into the mirror. Please join. Oh, 
So this is the Jew. Thank you. This is the Jew who on the night of Yom Kippur says these words. See that I am empty and impoverished. And so, when I do look into the mirror, and I could, I could turn to my Rebbe, to my mentor, to my teacher, to my soul, and say, I have made these mistakes. I have made these errors. I have violated these principles. Wisdom responds one way, prophecy another, Torah a third, God a fourth. Wisdom says, Chatoim Tirdafra, verse in Proverbs. Negativity pursues sin. I would explain wisdom here as spiritual psychology. Meaning, the role of psychology, of scrutinizing the human psyche, its patterns and its trends, even deeper psychoanalysis, is to explore the facts, to explore the movements, the pathways within the human psyche, just as there are physical laws of cause and effect, if I go out to the street and it's very cold outside and I'm not wearing a coat, I'm going to get a cold. If I place my finger on a stove, a burning stove, my finger will get burnt. Is that a punishment? You can call it a punishment. I would call it a natural consequence. There are laws of nature created by the author of nature, causes which create certain effects. If I jump down from a few floors, I might hurt myself. That's the way it is. But these laws don't only govern the physical world, they also govern the psyche of a human being, the soul of a human being. When I behave in a way that is alien to my nature, and that is alien to my essence, and that is alien to my innermost identity, I live a dysfunctional life. So what is the response of Chachma? What is the response of wisdom, of the spiritual psychological study of the human soul, of the human chemistry? Chatayim terdefra, negativity pursues sin. When somebody lives a life in which they become unaware of a system which is aligned with their true identity, when I behave in a fashion which is alien to who I am as a human being and as a Jew, the consequences are negative. For this you only have to know the inner workings of a person's soul. When I lie... When I lie, there are consequences. The consequences are not only if I get caught. I may never get caught. You know Shmuel? Guy Shmuel. He stole the rabbi's golden watch. Beautiful golden watch somebody bought the rabbi. He stole it. It's Yom Kippur. He wants to confess. He comes into the rabbi. He says, Rebbe, 
I stole a golden watch. The rabbi says, You have to immediately return it to the owner. He says, Really? Absolutely. Go to the owner and return it to him. He says, Rabbi, what if the owner doesn't want the watch? Then the rabbi says, If he doesn't want it, you can keep it. He says, Rabbi, would you like the watch? (laughs) The rabbi says, No, I told you, give it to the owner. Shmuel says, but the owner told me he doesn't want it. The rabbi says, then you can keep it. It's not only about whether the person is going to get caught or not. It's about understanding the spiritual patterns of the human psyche, of the human heart, of the human mind, and of the human soul. Wisdom, real Chachma, reveals that just as if I jump off three stories, I'm going to hurt my body. And if I walk out in the cold, I'm going to get a cold. And if I put my finger on fire, I'm going to get burnt. Those are the laws that govern the physical body. But there are spiritual, psychological, emotional laws that govern the inner life of the human being. And that's what Chachma says. You have to realize that there is a direct link between how you live and the fruits you reap from that lifestyle. If I'm going to eat and eat and eat non-stop, it's an old Kabbalistic Jewish custom. It's called the seafood diet. Whichever food you see, you eat. The consequences will be obesity. It's not a punishment. It's just the way it is. That's the law. Those are the laws that govern the abdomen. And then there are laws that govern the inner psyche. And that's what Chachma tells us. Remember, you have to be accountable to yourself, to your own soul, to your own psychological makeup. Because it is real. And if it gets abused, the results will appear sooner or later. You can deny reality for a while, but usually reality will prevail. Such is its nature, it's real. There's an alcoholic who lives in my community. And he once told me, he said, Rabbi Jacobson, I drink to drown my sorrow. I fail to realize that sorrow floats. Wisdom. Now let us go to prophecy. Prophecy is the person, the human being, the soul, who experiences God. Not the person who is an expert on human psychology and on the human soul and on the human system and knows that morals and ethics and values and integrity and goodness and kindness and mitzvot are inherent to a healthy life psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually, but the person who actually senses the presence of God in a very real way. They ask the prophet, what do you think of sin? And the prophet says, death. Sin causes death. The prophet is telling us something far deeper. The prophet 
experiences the truth that every mitzvah we do creates an intimacy between us and God. And every sin we commit creates a separation between the Jew and God. And for the prophet, for whom life equals oneness with God, the sin, separation, is a form of death. On Rosh Hashanah, we blow the ram's horn, the shofar. Why? What happened on the first Rosh Hashanah? Adam and Eve were created. How were they created? What does Genesis say? God blew into their nostrils a soul of life. God blew. We do the same thing on Rosh Hashanah. We take a shofar and we blow. We blow a soul of life into the cosmos, into the world, into the Jewish people. We mimic God. The only creature concerning whom it says God blew a soul into him is the human being. How did God create the rest of the world? How? By blowing? Speaking. God said, let there be light. There was light. God said, let there be vegetation. God said, let there be the sun, the moon, the stars. Let there be fish. Let there be mammals. He spoke. Bidvar Hashem Shemayim Nasu Psalms tells us. The words of God created the heaven and the earth. Only with a human being does it say, Vayipach, he blew a soul. Now obviously we don't believe in a corporal God. God has neither a mouth to communicate verbally through or to blow. So God is not giving speeches, pontificating. Rabbis do that. Nor is he blowing. That's what Baltokeas do. Obviously there is an imagery. The imagery that's being used, according to the Tanya, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, communicates a very powerful idea. He says, and let me use it, let me give, uh, let me give a very simple example to explain what he says in the, third, in the third section of Tanya. You remember when you were a little child and your parents were having a conversation about you in the kitchen? So what do you do? You got out of bed, and unless they spoke another language, like my parents who spoke Russian when they didn't want me to understand, but if they were speaking the language you understood, you would go to the door, and you'll put your ear by the door, and you pick up what they say. And of course, the next day, you prove your parents wrong, and so on and so forth, as every good Jewish child. Although they close the door, they lock the door, but word sound travels. You put your ear to the door, or not even... You lie in bed, and you hear the conversation. You may not hear it as clear as if you were in the kitchen. You may miss a few words, but you get the picture. But what happens if somebody lets out ear? Somebody lets out ear in any direction, blows. Here, if there is a wall, will the ear pass? No. It will not penetrate the partition, the wall. So words can travel beyond the fortress, beyond the wall. When somebody blows, the ear cannot travel. The wall will stop it. Says Rabbi Shnei this is the difference between the rest of the world and the soul. The rest of the world, God speaks into being. The soul, God blows into being. What is the difference? God can speak the world into being even if the world creates a partition and a wall between themselves and God. 
God's words will still penetrate. Yes, it won't be so clear, it won't be so obvious, it won't be so exciting. It'll be muffled and blurry and so forth. But the energy comes through. The world can exist. The sound can go through the wall. But what happens if a soul puts up a wall between itself and God? God is blowing. And the ear doesn't travel. So the soul doesn't get the oxygen it needs to live. That's the sensitivity of a soul. When a soul is disconnected, when a soul creates a wall between it and reality, between it and its true essence, between it and God, it's anathema to its very existence. So prophecy, which actually experiences God as a real reality, feels. How do we create walls between ourselves and God? God is omnipresent. The only way we can create a wall is if we violate God's will. If God wants me to do something or not to do something, and I betray that will, that's a wall. The prophet doesn't only speak like the psychologist. Chachma, wisdom, spiritual psychology, says, let me just tell you the facts. If you do this, this will be the result. If you do this, this will be the result. And the reason this and this developed in your life is because so, so, and so. And this is where a good psychoanalyst or a great therapist or shrink can bring you to, give you some clarity about the inner workings of your psyche. Spiritual psychology takes into account not only the mind from the human perspective, but also a deeper layer of human identity, including the spirituality of a person. The prophet who experiences God feels that every mitzvah creates intimacy with God and every sin creates disconnection. And then this is what the prophet talks about. Deep allergy, the deep sensitivity a soul has to sin. Then comes Torah. And Torah goes yet a step further. Torah acknowledges something that even the prophet did not capture, namely, As deeply mistaken we have been, and as many sins we may have committed, nevertheless, transgression affects only a certain part of human existence, and there is a part of us which remains pure, sacred, and holy. And thus the Torah says, let the person bring an animal sacrifice, atoning for his sin, representing the fact that it was the animal, it was the beast within the human being who committed the transgression, but there is a part of the human being who remained, which remained aloof and detached from the transgression. This is the great fundamental idea of Torah. Maybe one of the most fundamental ideas of Torah. That... No matter a person's circumstances, no matter what a person has been through, no matter the abuse we have created within our own lives towards ourselves or which others have imposed upon us, sadly and tragically, 
there is a part of you which remains invincible, pristine, clear, wholesome, harmonious, joyous, and complete. And the human being and the Jew can tap in to that space, to that sacred core, which transcends all of the sins, transgressions, mistakes, violations, and even abuse and pain, which we have wrought upon ourselves or others have wrought upon you. Sometimes it is very difficult to access that place. But this is what the Torah reveals, that there is a neshama, there is a soul which remains pure and sacred and untouchable, because nobody has access to abuse it, to pervert it, and to dis- or to destroy it. So the Torah says, let him bring an animal offering. Representing, yes, we have another side to ourselves as well. But there is a core that remains pure. And the animal sacrifice acknowledges it. This is the Torah's perspective. Sometimes psychology does not acknowledge that. Psychology, you know, including modern psychology and its many systems and branches, including the father of psychoanalysis, Freud himself, don't necessarily acknowledge that there is a true, sacred, invincible, divine core in every human being, notwithstanding the circumstances. What psychology can offer is, there is ground zero in your life, let me give it some clarity. Let me show you some of the patterns. Let us figure out some of the trends. Let us understand your responses, your subconscious experiences, your instinctive responses from childhood and so forth. The Torah introduces the fact that there is a core which you can rely on to redeem you, to heal you, to take you out. Yes, Sigmund Freud discussed the id, the id at the core of the human self. The id, and then there is the ego, and there is the superego. But at the core, there is the id. There is that uninhibited beast. Wishing to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, however it wants, with whomever it wants. But what was Freud missing? The id of Freud was missing one letter. You know which letter? Why? The yud, the yid beneath the id. Freud came and said, let us dig. And if we dig, we will discover mud and gravel and yet more mud. The Torah says, true. A lot of mud in the system. A lot of dirt, a lot of filth and a lot of gravel. But if you dig deeper, you'll find diamonds. Freud was not the only one who explored dreams in Jewish history. We have another great explainer of dreams. Who? Yosef. Joseph. Also interprets dreams. Yosef is made up of four letters. Yud, Vav, Samach, Fe. The last two letters of Yosef, Samach, Fe, is the acronym of Samach Fei, Sigmund Freud. 
So what was Sigmund Freud missing? The Yud and the Vav. The two letters of the Tetragrammaton of God's name. The Id beneath the Id. The diamonds beneath the dirt. The core self that is sacred and untouchable. Parents, teachers, educators, rabbis, leaders ought to give their children, their pupils, their disciples this confidence that they can look in the mirror and find the Yud and the Vav beneath the Id. So, the Torah added this new dimension. And then we come to God. We went to King Solomon, who was a great psychologist. We went to Ezekiel the prophet. We went to Moses. And then we go to God. You see, the difference between the prophet and God is very important. The prophet is spiritual. It's his greatness. It's also his downfall. God is not spiritual. We could say that God is spiritual as much as we can say God is physical. God is infinitely beyond the spirit as much as he's beyond the corporal. So the prophet looks at a human life and says, a mitzvah is one with God. You become one with God. Sin is you detach from God. And if you detach from God, from the prophet's perspective, that's a form of death. This the prophet speaks because he experiences God as a true reality. The prophet lives in heaven. The prophet lives in a very beautiful world of holiness. And therefore the prophet sees things in black and white, including Spiritual black and white. This is black and this is white. But God himself, God himself, not his wisdom and not his prophecies and not his Torah. God himself never sees anything in terms of black and white. Because God is expressed in the blackness as much as he is expressed in the whiteness. And God is on earth as much as he is in heaven. And God is in darkness as much as he is in light. Or as the verse in Psalm says, Im esak shamayim, if I go up to heaven, shamata, you're there. Atziyah I go down to the abyss, hineka, you're there. There was a Russian politician who once told his constituents, I have great news for you. Yesterday we were standing at the edge of the abyss, Today we took a giant step forward. <laughs> you see, friends, we use the word God and it's a terrible thing that we use that word, friends. We just don't have a choice because we don't know how to sing. But the word God is not a, it's not a real word. As you know, the word God turns off as many people from God as it turns on because it comes with so much baggage right can I ask a question in this room 
How many people instinctively, when you hear the word God, does your heart get a good feeling or a negative feeling? How many people sitting in this room, when you hear the word God instinctively, do you get a little bit of a negative feeling? You could quote your friends if you want. (laughs) But I'm going to do a little exercise with you. I want you to do this exercise in your time. I want you, at any point, to close your eyes. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you'll have a lot of time between the cantors and the prayers and the sermons. Right? You know the story of the... Of the guy who's uh, snoring in the middle of the rabbi's sermon. So the rabbi says, Mr. President, go wake up Yankel. He's snoring. So he says, Rabbi, you put him to sleep. You wake him up. <laughs> there's, another, there's, a, there's, a, there's another story of another guy who's snoring in the middle of the rabbi's sermon. And the president goes over to him and says, you know, you really have to stop snoring. He says, excuse me, I pay full membership fees. I have a right to do whatever I want in the synagogue, including snoring. He says, that's true. The problem is when you're snoring, you're waking up other people. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one more in honor of the high holidays. <clears throat> it's actually one of my favorites, one of my old-time favorites. Uh, and I know it doesn't apply to Rabbi Sherman and Chabad Center of the main line, because here there's a different experience. I'm just talking about New York where there's a few shuls and a few rabbis. So there was a rabbi, you know, usually the rabbi and the president never get along. You know that, right? They're usually not on speaking terms. It's usually 20, 30, 40 years they're not on speaking terms. When I see a rabbi and a president and a gabbai getting along, I make shachiyano. It's a very miracle. That's why the rabbi sits on this side of the synagogue and the president sits there. And that's how it works, usually. Again, not here, present company excluded, not in the state of Pennsylvania, but sometimes in New York. Shalom Aleichem, the rabbi says, the president says, Aleichem Shalom, and that's the beginning and the end of every conversation. So uh, there was this president in a very famous temple who would snore and sleep throughout the entire sermon of the rabbi for 25 years. It was embarrassing, sitting up on the stage snoring. The gabbai hated both of them, as he usually does. If you know Gabbai's, right? If you know a little Shulpal. So the Gabbai wanted to take revenge from the president who was about to fire him at the next board meeting. So the president goes over to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, give me permission next Saturday when he starts snoring to take a stick and knock him on his head to teach him a lesson. The rabbi says it's a beautiful idea, a very noble idea. I give you my full consent. The Gabbai is excited comes home, he tells his wife, it's unbelievable what's going to happen to Shabbos, tremendous stuff. He gets ready a bat. You know, he's not going to take a broom, he's going to take a bat. Rabbi starts talking, sure enough, everybody gets into position, the usual suspects, the rabbi is preaching, and the president is snoring. And the rabbi walks over to him and takes a stick and knocks him over his head. And the president looks up sees the gabbai with a bat. He tells the gabbai, do it again. The gabbai is like, why? And the president says, I could still hear him. (laughs) (laughs) So you see, during the holiday, 
during the high holidays, people often have a time they can daydream. So once in a while, if you go to synagogue, it's also good between all of the daydreaming to think about God for a few minutes. Maybe not such a long time. You know, Jews get very allergic to the concept. But, uh, but maybe a few minutes. And I want, I want you to do this exercise. Think of the word God. And when the word God enters into your mind, think what is the image instinctively being conjured in your imagination when you say the word God or you think the word God or you hear the word God not the image you think about or you contemplate but the image instinctively emerging in your mind most of us or many of us will find two things number one there is an image and number two it's a very primitive one because many of us still maintain the same image of God we developed at the age of three, four, five, or six. There's one problem, of course. The Torah says God has no image. But if we, upon hearing the word God, immediately conjure an image, can we even develop a relationship with God? Or it's just our own projection? So the Holy Badichava said to an atheist, he said, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. The God you're denying, I also don't believe in. So we may be more identical than we think. Because the God the atheist is denying may be the right God to deny. That may be a good God to obliterate. It may not be such a bad idea. The God of ego, the God of holier than thou, the God of religious arrogance the God of dishonesty, the God in whose presence there is no integrity, these gods you may want to become an atheist about. So you see, when we speak God, we do G-O-D. That's not so bad. G-O-D is not such a bad word. What's bothering me is the image that many of us conjure, and we have a very hard time cleansing our system from that image. The real God transcends wisdom and prophecy and Torah. And therefore, when they come to God, God has a different response than the response of psychology, than the response of spiritual prophecy, even than the response of Torah, of religion, of Judaism. It's a very different response. I would say that it's a very non-conventional response. In fact, God may be expelled from many synagogues for saying this. It's a very non-conventional response, and therefore none of the others can say it because they're defined by their experience of life and by them understanding what is good and what is bad, what is productive, what is destructive, what is black, what is right, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. We live in a world of polarities. But God has no image and is undefined, and therefore God has a different response to mistakes and sin. The psychologist says, these are the consequences. Let me show you a map of your soul, a map of your psyche. You make a turn here, you're going to get lost. If you don't listen to the GPS, 
If you don't listen to God's positioning system, you will get lost. You may be a stubborn Jew. And you know, most Jews don't follow the GPS, especially if there's a woman's voice. You will get lost. I'm going to show you a map. The prophet says, it's far deeper. You're detaching from God's will, God's desire, God's breath. And breath can travel through walls. You're tearing yourself away from your source of life. And Torah says, but I know about your pure soul. I know about that. And then God says, I look at sin as different. Sin is actually, mistakes are actually the only opportunity for a person to do tshuva. It's the opportunity for recovery. It's the opportunity to rebound. It's the opportunity to rediscover truth in a far more profound way than if you would have never sinned. So God comes and says, who decided to call it a mistake? Who decided to call it a sin? Who? Oh, my Torah? Oh, yeah, I know. (laughs) I know, that's what I want. I like mitzvahs. I don't like averis. But God, the essence of God, is even beyond will, is even beyond desire. Who decided to call this a mistake and this a sin? Wisdom, prophecy, Torah. But now you're talking to God. God says, it's not a mistake. It's an opportunity for rejuvenation, as in J-E-W. You remember the king who summoned a Jewish artist and says, my dear artist, paint a picture of me. But the king says two conditions. Condition number one, the picture must be accurate, honest, no falsehoods. Condition number two, I must look perfect in the painting. Flawless. The problem was the two conditions were mutually exclusive. Because the king happened to have a big scar on top of his eye. So this Jewish artist was in a dilemma. What does he do? If he creates a flawless painting, it's not honest. If he creates an honest painting, it's not flawless. And in the good old days, if you don't fulfill one of the monarch's conditions, you come out with a head shorter. So what does a Jew do? He goes to his rabbi. He says, Rabbi, I have a problem. So Rabbi says, let's have a stickle herring. And we'll become smarter. And then the rabbi says, tell me, does the king have a little seichel? The king is a smart man. Yeah, he's a pretty intelligent man. The rabbi says, okay, here is the idea. We're going to paint a picture of the king engrossed in thought. What do great scholars do when they're engrossed in thought? They take their hands... And they put it on their forehead. And thus, the forefinger will be covering the scar. And he paints the picture. And he brings it to the king. And the king loves it. Wow, I'm an intellectual. And he rewards him even more. So you see, 
he took the very problem, he took the scar, and he redefined it as a piece of art which only brought out even more beauty. That's what true tshuva means. True tshuva doesn't only mean I'm a bad guy and therefore there are bad results. I learned my lesson. Tshuva is not even I really learned my lesson because this was a death call. Tshuva is not even I'm a bad guy, I did bad things, but there is still hope somewhere in me. Tshuva is much deeper. Tshuva is, very, is redefining and questioning the very notion that you did a bad thing. Because if you learn from it to become a truer, deeper, healthier, more loving, more godly human being, it will turn out that the very mistake was actually a profound catalyst and a profound step in growth. The person who fails and stumbles and then from that failure comes to learn what truth is, then their very failure becomes a springboard and a catalyst for a much deeper vitality and passion and growth. There's nobody who appreciates a cold cup of water as the man lost in the desert for two days who hasn't had a drink and then quenches his thirst. The very thirst gives a new passion. And there's nobody who appreciates health like the person who has lost it. The very loss becomes part of the passion with which this person embraces his or her life. There's no love like the love that's almost been lost or has been lost and then you reclaim it because the very loss then becomes part of the experience of love. They say that the Chinese survived for 5,000 years because the same character they have for the word crisis, they also have for the word opportunity. So that's a very different perspective on Shavuot. This is now what the Medrash says. Which verse for God? So what does the Medrash put it beautifully? What the Medrash means is that the uniqueness of Tshuva is that from the very sin we create a path to return. From the very place which got us so lost we recreate the path to recovery. That's why there are four answers, because we have four phases. There is the psychologist. You come to your psychologist and you say, Doc, or shrink, I'm not feeling well. I'm not feeling good about myself. I'm not happy. We live in an unhappy generation. I mean, Prozac and Zoloft have become the miracle drug of a generation. Many people are unhappy. I don't feel good. And if he's a real chacham, or she is a real chachama, they'll be able to show you where is your life going wrong? Where is it being disaligned with the blueprint? And then you'll come to the prophet or that part of you which is a prophet who will actually experience God, he will take it a step deeper and show you how you're detaching yourself not only from your own truth, but from the truth of reality, from the cosmic truth of the world. 
And then there is the experience which allows you to experience your purity. And then there is that voice which allows you to redefine the very mistake and sin as another mitzvah. This is the depth of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We take the shofar, we blow. Tkiah. What is Tkiah? A plain sound. Tu shvarim, broken. Tu, 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 trua, even more broken into little pieces. Tu, 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 tu. And then Tkiah. So the Holy Shalwa, Rabbi Isaiah Horowitz says, they're not separate sounds. The last kia is created from the shavarim and the trua. What does he mean? What does the shalom mean? He means this idea. The shavarim and the trua themselves become the final kia, and that's why it's a kia gdaila. It's a long, powerful blast which you could never experience in the beginning. And that's the story of life. When we're born, we come out of our mother's wombs, we're like a pure kia. straight, smooth. We don't lie to ourselves. We don't lie to others. But life breaks most people. You just, some people just know how to live in broken places better than others. We have Shvarim and we have Trua. But from the Shvarim and the Trua, we can go back to Tkia and reclaim even a deeper Tkia, Tkia Gdaila, which we could have never experienced with the first Tkia because the very transgression becomes a springboard for a new awareness. And the energy that comes from transforming darkness into light is a very, very powerful energy. This is also the secret when Yom Kippur comes. And we open Yom Kippur with Kol Nidre. What is Kol Nidre? say my promises, my vows, my commitments are nullified, are annulled. And what does that represent emotionally? What does that represent psychologically? It represents the fact that every person has sometimes promises and vows and commitments that we feel bound up by and therefore we cannot change. Why do we start off Yom Kippur with Kol Nidre? It's not just a promise I make to you, I'm never going to eat cheesecake again. It's also deeper promises. Some of us are tied with cords to habits and addictions and certain relationships and attitudes which we feel we cannot change. They define us instead of us defining them. And that's the secret of Kol Nidre. Oh, you know.
Oh, oh. 
one of us it could mean something else but I think one thing it means to all of us and that is we can't afford to remain stuck in the past 
We can't remain paralyzed not by our own mistakes or by other people's mistakes. We have to be able to have the courage not just to speak to our shrink, not just to speak to our prophets, not only to speak to our Torah, but also to speak to God. To speak to God means the courage to see things in a completely new way, unconventional, undefined by any preconceived notions. Because from there comes liberation. From there comes healing. From there you could look back at mistakes that have been committed by yourself, by your mother, of course. Not by my mother, by your mother. <laughs> by your father. By your mother-in-law. Ha, 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 ha. Not my mother-in-law. I said your mother-in-law. By your siblings, by your brothers, by your sisters, by your husband, by your wife, by your children, by your employer, by your employee, by your rabbi, president, gabbai. And the whole spectrum of people who machas meshuga in our life in one way or another. And many just remain stuck. There's people we don't speak to. There's people we won't invite to a bar mitzvah. There's people we will not call up to wish anatova because I'm not on speaking terms with this person. Yet you may be very deeply paralyzed. We have to have the courage to be able to speak and reach out to God and see it from God's perspective. A very different perspective. And then the very mistake and the very pain and the very negativity can experience its transformation. Yes, you can go straight to God. You first have to speak to wisdom, to prophecy, to Torah. You know why? Because if you go straight to God, you're usually in denial. You're a little freaky, maybe. You're hearing voices, and I can guarantee you, you're not a prophet. We begin with wisdom. We begin with prophecy. We continue with prophecy. We continue with Torah. Deeply evolved stages of self-awareness. Even the first, certainly the second, and then the third. We first understand our own system. Then we understand the truth that transcends us, that defines reality. And then we understand a truth that remains untouchable and is not affected by reality. Those are the three levels. But then we can come to God. And this is our calling. Part of our calling at this time of the year is to truly be able to set ourselves free from these shackles and to transform your shvarim and through into a tkiah. Not only for yourself, but because the world needs your light. And as long as your light is trapped, as long as your angel is trapped in the marble, the world is not getting your light. There's people around you whom only you can bring healing to. Your embrace, your love, your gesture, your smile, your invitation. There are children, there are teenagers, there are youngsters 
who need your light for them to find theirs. So you can't afford to let your light remain enslaved, not just for your sake, but for their sake too. And here I conclude with this story. It's not a story. It's a life. But I feel today, as we celebrate the high holidays, 5770 in freedom, we have to remember Rosh Hashanah, 1944. Location, Auschwitzin, Auschwitz. Rabbi Tzvi Hirschmeisels was a Hungarian rabbi. He authored a book called Mekatshe Hashem, Sanctifiers of God's Name. He smuggled a chauffeur into Auschwitz. He blew the chauffeur in his barrack. And then he went from barrack to barrack and he blew the chauffeur for hundreds of Jews and he writes thank God I managed to blow a hundred blasts a hundred blows and fulfill the mitzvah of shofar the Jews he says were overjoyed but then a scene I hear screams Rabbi Meisels Rabbi Meisels I look there was a group of young boys who were isolated into a particular block in Auschwitz because they were selected to be sent to the gas chambers. And he came close to the block and he said, Rabbi Meisels, before we die, we want to hear the chauffeur. And Rabbi Meisels writes, he says, I debated within myself, should I go, should I not go? Dusk has arrived. The sun was almost setting on the day of Rosh Hashanah. I knew that soon the SS men are going to come, and if I would be inside, I would not be let out. My son Zalman Leib said, Father, if you go, I will remain orphaned. You're the only thing I have in life. You can't go in. But he says, the boys were begging, Rebbe, come. Don't take away the shofar from us. And he says, I refused the cry of my own son. And I went into their block. And I started to say the verses before the blowing of the shofar. And one of the boys turned to me and said, Rebbe, before you start blowing, we want to hear some departing words of inspiration. Some of these boys, he says, I knew they learned in my yeshiva. They were my students. They were in my city. And I'm standing there with them in this place. And they want to hear words. What am I supposed to tell them? And Rabbi Meisel said, I told them what came into my mind. And what he told them was that the verse says in Psalms, Tiku b'chaydish shayfer Talmud says the only holiday in the beginning of the month is Rosh Hashanah. Passover 
is on the 15th of the month. Sukkot on the 15th of the month. What happens on the 15th of the month? We have a full moon. Rosh Hashanah is the only Jewish holiday on the first day of the month. On the first day of the month, there's no moon. The Jewish people have been compared to the moon. Our calendar is a lunar calendar. He says Rosh Hashanah is a holiday in the time when there's no light. There's no light of the moon. There's no light left. God himself is concealed. And yet, the Jew lifts up the shofar and blows tkiah, shvarim, trua, tkiah. He blows the sound of faith and hope in such a moment. And I told him the Talmud says that even if a sword is near the neck of a person, he should not stop asking for mercy. And I began blowing the shofar and sobs were heard from all sides, all sides, and from all the youngsters. And he left. He made it out. And Rabbi Meisel said, never in my life before or after have I experienced Judaism and what a Jew is. Like at that moment, right there. He says, I must transcribe for eternity the Messiris Nefesh, the self-sacrifice of these holiest children standing right there. You know, those kids, as we know, were gassed and then burnt by the monsters, by the Nazi monsters. Here we are exactly 65 years later, 1944-2009. Exactly 65 years later. And in a few days, we will pick up a chauffeur. And I feel in many ways when we pick up a chauffeur, it's our way of embracing of embracing these children, these youngsters, of kissing them, of holding on to their holiness. And I think to ourselves, to, to our, I think to myself, if they can hold up a chauffeur in those days, in the most hellish place on earth, in the greatest darkness, they can hold up a chauffeur, a chauffeur of hope, of faith, of dignity, of Will we, 65 years later, drop the chauffeur? Will we not continue the blast that they began and they continued? The story of Jewish history is Tkia, Shvarim, Trua. And then the Tkiyak Dayla of Mashiach. Jews always knew somehow from the Tkiyah we go to Shvarim Trua, but it has to lead back to Tkiyak Dayla. And those boys, together with the six million who sacrificed their lives, we are their ears. We are their spiritual children. They never had children. We are the ones who are summoned in today's generation to hold up 
the shofar. Rabbi Meisels says, I walked out of their block with my shofar. I looked at them. They looked at me. And they all recited in unison that verse which we say in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, which we actually say every day, in your Torah it's written, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Eloikeinu, Hashem Echad. Those were the words on the lips of those young Jews during those moments.
Follow the perspective of wisdom, prophecy, and Torah, but of God too. And knew that every Shvarim and Trua must be converted into a new Tkiyagdaila. For every crisis, the Jewish people made a resolution to use it as an opportunity to rebuild every demolition became the beginning of a renovation. After that destruction 65 years ago, what did our brothers and sisters do? They decided to use the Shvarim and Trua as a springboard for an unprecedented renaissance. One that we can witness right here in this room in mainline Pennsylvania just as we can across the world joining us here tonight. We do this individually and we do it collectively. 
And thus, as we begin the new year, 5770. Good year for Chabad. Very good year for Chabad. Right? Even people who don't like Chabad have no choice. What's this year? 770. <laughs> In Hebrew, it's Tavshin Ayin. Tavshin Ayin is the acronym Tehei Shnat Ashirus. May it be the year of wealth. We can all use a blessing for wealth. The Jewish people, Jewish institutions, the world, America, the world. Wealth materially and wealth spiritually. And the two must be connected. But wealth is not just about how much money you have in the bank and how many possessions you own. Wealth is also about being rich in attitude, being rich in perspective. There are rich people and there are impoverished people. So the Talmud says, Ein ani ela Poverty is in the mind. Wealth is also in the mind. There are people who may have a lot, but they are impoverished. And there are people who may not have so much, and may everybody have more, but they're very rich. And the reason they're so rich is because they have a rich approach to life. And what makes their approach so rich is that they never give up on seeing the richness in themselves and the rich opportunity in every experience around them to make from Tkia Shvarim Trua a Tkia. May you, us, all of our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land and in the world be blessed with a Shana Tova Umetuka, a sweet year, a good year, a blessed year, which God fulfills all of your and our heart's desires, materially, spiritually, and primarily a year when we will hear the real the great blast of salvation and redemption individually and collectively. May it be speedily in our days. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. We're just going to uh, turn the lights up if we could. We're going to take uh, one or two questions here now, and then we'll be uh, take one or two questions now. There's also dessert in the front room that we'll be able to uh, partake of afterwards. Is there any one or two questions you want to ask at this time? Questions or objections? <laughs> no questions? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Is it then fair to say that the challenges that we have in life 
are put there deliberately and there is a pattern to them. I don't think one should say it so bluntly because emotionally it could be very offensive for a person to hear that. Do you know what I mean? It could be very painful. But yet, on a deeper level, I think each of us on our own uh, can reach that place where we ourselves can look back and say, hmm, I can say thank you for my challenges. I don't think I can tell it to somebody else. I don't think I can tell you or you can tell me, oh, don't worry, your challenges, they're there deliberately, it's just there to help you. If it doesn't break, it'll make you stronger. My job is to show empathy. It's a very deep personal journey. But each person on their own and collectively can discover that. And when we discover that, true healing can occur. Any other questions? Yes. Which one? Okay, Gewald. One of the Gematrius, one of the Gematrius of 770 is, anybody knows? 770. It's a word that God tells Jacob in the famous dream. Ufaratsta. Ufaratsta yama vakedma v'tzafayna v'negba. Uparatsta means you should break forth to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. So this essentially captures the message. There's the power of uferatsta. That a person ought to muster the courage and strength to break forth. Kol Nidre, all the promises and vows and pledges that have tied me down, I can break out, break forth, and spread east and west and north and south because the sky is the limit, and not even the sky is the limit as we have seen God's response. That's one gematria. Another interesting gematria is base Mashiach. That's what you said, right? The house of Mashiach. So that, that I think, empowers each of us to make our home a home that's ready for Mashiach. If Mashiach is going to come into my house tonight, will he feel comfortable? Depends what he sees on the table. <laughs> that's why you have to have a little schnapps. Mashiach is going to come thirsty. You know, in heaven there's no drinking. Okay, if you're an AA, grape juice. But the point is, of course, spiritually, is my house ready for Mashiach? Or will I be embarrassed? Say, wait, 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 Mashiach! I got to get rid of this. I got to get rid of this. A Jewish home is a home that's based Mashiach. It's a home that if Mashiach comes in, he's comfortable. The reason he's comfortable is because it's a home that's permeated with, with beauty 
and with love and with kindness and with holiness. So I gave you two gematrias. When you finish working on both of them and you complete the homework, I'll give you a third gematria. We'll take one last question if there is. You want to ask? You sure you're all Jewish? I don't know it. That's the truth. I want to take this opportunity to thank Rabbi Sherman, Rabbi Brennan, and the Rebbitsons and the leadership of Chabad here in the main line for organizing this lovely evening. I want to thank... I want to thank again Ira and Hannah Pressman for allowing this evening to happen in honor of their beloved family, their beloved children. We thank them so much, dear friends, kindred spirits, great souls who I think are an embodiment of the ideals addressed tonight. I want to thank our dear friends from Columbus, Ida and David Schattenstein, in merit of their godson, Isser Binyamin Ben Becker, whose bris was yesterday. And I want to thank also Fivish and Tamar Pevsner and family who have dedicated this evening in the loving memory of Fivish's father, Reb Hillel, Reb David Pevzner, Zechrenel of Rachel, passed away on the 14th of Tammuz. I wish you all a Shana Tova, a beautiful year, a year of love and redemption and light, and good night. Thank you.